This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Wynn. Christopher Wynn's career spans four decades and he has become an industry leader in the field of engineering broadly and AI specifically. Since fleeing Vietnam in 1978, he has founded multiple tech companies and has played a key role in everything from building the first flash memory transitors at Intel to spearheading the development of Google Apps as its first engineering director. As a professor, Christopher co-founded the Computer Engineering Program at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, or HKUST. He earned his Bachelor's of Science degree from the University of California, Berkeley, summa cum laude, and his PhD from Stanford University. Today, he's become an outspoken proponent of the emerging field of AI engineering and a thought leader in the space of ethical, human-centric AI. With his latest company, Itematic, He's hoping to redefine how companies approach AI in the context of life-critical industrial applications. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Deb. So, Christopher, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about ethical and humane AI, which I know is a topic that you think quite a bit about. It's actually a topic that gets a lot of press these days with unethical and inhumane AI and its consequences taking center stage at a number of prominent debates from creating destructive polarization in our civil discourse to perpetuating and augmenting bias in our criminal justice system to malignant surveillance systems. I wonder, other than a few admittedly bad actors, how many people involved with the creation or growth of these objectively destructive systems or negative societal consequences that I mentioned are actually for unethical and humane AI, as in proponents of unethical and inhumane AI? I can't think that that's really the case. I can't think that there are just a ton of bad actors wanting to create malignant consequences or effects uh, out of these products. So if there aren't really villains in the story of unethical or inhumane AI, in the classical sense of bad actors seeking to do harm, why is there so much unethical and inhumane AI in our system in the first place? Well, I, I think, you know, one thing I've learned, you know, having, having lived on this earth for, for a very long time is that uh, nobody gets up in the morning saying, hey, I'm going to be evil today, right? Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing by their standards and, 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 and so on. Uh, but I think the reason or one big reason why the discourse around ethical AI confuses things is that we we confuse impact with intent and i think in our legal system for example intent matters for a lot and we don't think a lot as much about the impact so i think if we begin to at least separate the variables right in the technical terms impact versus intent then we can you know begin to disentangle terms like unethical as for example is this person intend to be unethical or is the, is the impact of what they do unethical? Do you think that we should uh, hold people accountable for the impact of their unethical AI? And, and what would that look like? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's not just AI, right? When you talk about, for example, uh, I myself have evolved my thinking about racism and affirmative action. I came to the country as a, as a refugee child, right? And, and held certain political beliefs, if you will, right? But, but over time, uh, I, I realized that 
in many cases, in fact, in most cases, impact matters a lot more than intent. And, and as long as we confuse those two, right, uh, I think it's going to be hard to talk about ethics in general, uh, let alone ethics uh, as, as it pertains to AI. Yeah. On the one hand, we have you know engineers going to uh, Facebook campus, for example, in their day job, doing the uh, tasks that they are assigned to do, creating uh, algorithms that might in the real world have a terrible effect. But I can't think that these people are bad people. They uh, oftentimes went to very progressive schools. They have very progressive ideals. Um, they have strong social ethics. So what gets in the way? How do we think about, on the one hand, actors working in these uh, large kind of bureaucracies? and organizations that may not have ideated the tasks or potentially uh, CEOs who may not actually be orchestrating the intentions or the architecture that they had in mind, and yet the combination of these things end with uh, disastrous effects in the real world. I, I think con conditioned on the, on the you know, assumption that I, that I said earlier, and I think it's quite serious. No one really gets up in the morning. Very few people get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be evil today. Uh, conditioned on that recognition, then we can begin to talk, you know, very honestly and very intellectually about the impact of, of our systems. I have very good friends, very honorable people, very well-intended people who insist that, for example, it is not the responsibility of their system. It is the up to the users, right? I mean, we live in a society where that people don't, you know, people kill people, guns don't kill people, right? That, I mean, that's kind of the principle by which uh, we make a lot. And, and I think it's, it's, there's something uniquely American about it. So uh, if, if we separate, again, going back, separated the impact from the intent, then we can have conversations about, and, and I hate to name names, but, you know, it's, it's well discussed. So, for example, the impact that Facebook as a social network and the amplification mechanism has on the world versus the intent of the very good researchers and engineers, uh, you know, trying to shape that, uh, how the system works. I, I think this, this is actually, you're, you're touching on something very deep and very personal to people that work there and say, I really, you know, you have no idea what we intend. We have no idea the kind of good work we want to do. Uh, and yet it's very difficult to say, yes, I acknowledge all of that, but what is the impact? So who can we hold accountable for creating ethical and humane AI? Or conversely, who can we co hold accountable for not creating ethical and humane AI? Well, uh, let, let's, let's take the empirical evidence. Um, there's a company, and this one I will not name because it's not generally known out there. For example, they make technology, and they've been in this business for a very long time, for making decisions with respect to rental applications and, and loan applications and so on. And for a very long time, they've been able to sort of abstract away the decisions made using their software. And it's always been the actual rental companies or the actual loan agencies and so on that were held accountable for that. It's, it's fascinating that there's something substantively different about AI and data science that recently there's a lawsuit and it's still pending. It's still going on and where, where a judge has determined that they are, in fact, a party, you know, because A, you, you're making a lot of money from this and B, you're actually making most of the decisions and, and your users, you know, these, these agencies 
uh, just essentially taking a number or, or a decision coming out from your system. So whatever we say here, the, 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 you know, out there, 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 there's a lot of legal and ethical wrangling already happening. So whether you want to be held accountable for that, you know, the, the court systems are, are, are going to call you to, in, to account. Uh, one way or another. I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about how we create a human-first AI. Uh, I believe that that's your term, human-first AI. What led you to want to work on this problem? What were you seeing or experiencing in the industry that led you to want to pursue questions of how we create that kind of human-first AI? And I know that you started a company, in fact, founded on those principles. So what uh, mobilized that kind of thinking and that uh, interest in creating a human-first AI? Well, I certainly didn't come at it from an ethical angle, right? And, and you know, just as an aside, talking about ethics is pretty dangerous because uh, everyone feels they're sort of qualified to talk about it, right? Because it, it feels truthy and, and so on. So I'm, I, I would be the first to claim that I, I should be, I'm not an ethicist and I didn't come at it from, from that angle. I came at it from a purely technical angle, right? And that is, and, and that in itself is quite fascinating. There is a blind spot uh, in Silicon Valley, and I use the term Silicon Valley as a representation of the sort of the bubble that that we all live in uh, called tech. Right? In the last ten years, certainly the last five, you know, data is the new oil. Data is king, and it turns out that uh, for for a very large class of problems, and I can explain, you know, I call them physical problems versus digital problems. There's not enough data to make decisions. And, and we really need human judgment and human decisions and, and human expertise uh, to solve these problems. So in the, in the process of building tools and technology to incorporate human knowledge into these AI systems, then you, know, you, can, you can sort of anticipate eventually you come to the intersection of you know, how humans are making decisions and how that's being incorporated into the system. And then when you deploy these physical systems, how they affect humans you know, in the outside world. And, and, like it or not, you have to come to, uh, to, to grapple with the issue of what we call human first. Okay. So I know that it wasn't potentially the ethical dimension of the human first AI that led you to want to, to work on that. Um, but certainly it seems as though that has become an outcome of putting humans first in developing an approach to AI. And I know that one of your specialties has to do with thinking about how engineers can create AI that both has uh, the components of human first embedded in uh, the genesis of the product, um, as well as in the performance. So how can engineers do this? Or should I say, can engineers do this? Do we need folks other than engineers to effectively create a human-first approach to AI? Or can you teach engineers to, do, to approach AI creation um, with a human-first uh, attitude or ethic? Oh, well, uh, coming at it from a purely technical angle, uh, have you heard recently all of the chatter around GPT-3 and, and most recently, just this past week, chat GPT? I've heard a little bit about it, but maybe if you could uh, explicate it a little bit for our listeners, it would be helpful to give them some context. Well, essentially, it's a it's a what's called a large language model, meaning it is a language model that's been trained with copious amounts of data. You know, think of it roughly as sort of all the world's accessible data. I'm exaggerating slightly, but uh, you know, th these so-called foundational models, once you train them with enough data and with enough you know compute power. At places like OpenAI, you know, Facebook, Google, and so on, 
then then appears to there, there's some emergent understanding or some approximation of understanding uh, of the world, right? And so you know, OpenAI has released this tool called ChatGPT that allows you to converse. And, you know, I, I would love for you to play with it and tell me what you think from your perspective, right? But it has it, it's quite amazing. It's not just a chatbot that you know comes back with programmed answers and so on. It appears to be quite thoughtful. You can ask it certainly to derive mathematical equations, you know, laws of gravity and so on. But you can also ask it some interesting, you know, questions having to do with existence and meaning of life and so on. Uh, and it maintains sort of thorough understanding. It's, it's far passing the, uh, the so-called Turing test, right? Where that's relevant is that we didn't have such a technology before. So up to about this point, the way we have trained AI or machine learning models have been data-based, right? We have rows and columns of data where the columns represent the input variables and there's one column that represents the output. So you might think of, again, going back to the housing decision, you know, might be age, you know, credit history and so on. And by the way, race is not okay as a column, right? Uh, as a feature. And then output, yes, no, you know, the, the decision. In, you know, in the near future, we'll, because of this, this large language model, this foundational models where we can communicate with our very machines, with these algorithms using natural language, then we will begin to actually train, constrain, you know, the, there's a term called align alignment, you know, of the model with the intent of the creator. We'll be, we'll be able to do that, not through data anymore, but through words, through communication. So, so that is an emergent, very interesting, I would say very powerful tool to, to incorporate human intent that, that wasn't quite possible before. If I wanted to incorporate human intent before, I would have to somehow convert that into the rows and columns, right? And, and, and express it that way. Uh, so, so I think these are very exciting times, but it's also quite, uh, you know, technology is always a, a double-edged sword, right? And, and so if, if your intent is now no longer, they don't no longer have to be encoded using rows and columns, but you can actually speak right directly into these models. How does that get processed and how does that get embedded in these systems? And so for you, where do the ethical issues come up? Because I can think about a ton of them, but I'm interested from a, a human first approach to AI, what kind of ethical issues you see coming up? Right. So, so for the system that we specialize in, we specialize in something called industrial AI. And that turns out to be a, a huge industry, $25 trillion you know, industry. Uh, that's been largely ignored by Silicon Valley, right? Uh, it's quite interesting in, in the sense that because it touches the physical world, right? For the last 10, 20 years, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, we say software is eating the world, right? So if you look at companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, it's all digital in, digital processed, and digital out, right? You know, the, the impact... If there's any physical movement, it's you're clicking the mouse on an ad, right? And so there's impact to society with respect to social networks and so on. But if you think about physical systems, a car, a plane, uh, even refrigeration systems and so on, we're still humans as we're still embodied. You know, we're still physical. You still need to eat. You need to, need to drive and so on. So the systems that we deal with touch people's lives. Positively or negatively, uh, you know, and, and, and this is not unique to AI. Uh, when you talk to people in the field of industrials, right, like safety, responsibility, this is already encoded in their DNA. It, it's, it's us that, that come from the digital world that have sort of learned it for the first time. So when the systems that we build, typically the, the ethical implications is on the output side. 
that's why I think a lot about impact. You know, when we build the systems here that, that has data rows and columns, and then we give uh, our users the ability to, to input human knowledge. For example, you know, we do something uh, called fish identification for environmentally uh, fishing off the coast of Japan. And it turns out, you, you know, to identify fish from what's called echograms, you know, the machine learning approach, the AI, so-called, you know, normal AI approach is to feed it a lot of images of, of these fish. And then uh, it, uh, you use experts to label these things. And it turns out the experts are the fishermen. You know, over time, they, they, they know mackerel and sardines and so on, and they sort of map it to the echograms. They say, okay, these circles and these lines, you know, they, that they look like nothing to you, but to me, that's mackerel. So, so our systems help encode what that fisherman just said, in this case in Japanese, right, into the AI system, right? So, so at that point, you don't see any impact, right? You don't see any implications as far as, as, as you know, ethics. But when these systems are deployed, a car that, that learns how to drive by itself, right? If, if we get it wrong, then someone dies. So, so the, 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 the ethical impact of putting these systems in, in practice are enormous. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's take a step back for a second because you're, you're talking here about the uh, cultivation of what maybe some folks might call a big data or the classification of that kind of uh, big data. And I've heard you talk uh, about the role that big data plays in negative outcomes within AI systems. So first of all, maybe I could get you to define what you mean by that term big data. Is big data the information itself? Is it the classification system that you're talking about here that uh, mobilizes that data into uh, different categories that then allows for you might say the dissemination of that data into a kind of a systemic impact. And then why is big data a problem for the creation and stability of ethical and humane AI? How can we get from, on the one hand, um, what you're talking about, which you know you say uh, may not have a ethical outcome to its ethical uh, output or its ethical impact to the point where we do need to start thinking about the uh, ethics of big data? Well, there, there was a time when we had to define the term big data and people talk about the Vs, the volume, the velocity, variety, and so on. And there was a podcast that I did with uh, Andreessen Horowitz almost 10 years ago where I said, and this was sort of before people were quite aware of machine learning AI. It was all about data first, right? And, and I said, the reason for big data is machine learning. And a lot of people said, what the hell are you talking about, right? <laughs> big data is for analytics, for, for visualization and so on. Anyway, so that statement is now patently obvious, but it wasn't obvious 10 years ago. And so if you take that position that the reason for big data is machine learning, so the best way to, to say what is big data is not so much some absolute size or variety and so on, but it's big enough for machine learning algorithms to learn from, right? For e enough for machine learning algorithms to detect patterns and mimic the decisions that have been made in the past, right? Uh, so, so that's my favorite definition of big data. Big data is big enough for a machine to learn from. So, you know, if you're trying to make, uh, going back to the example of housing decisions and so on, maybe you need tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of past examples to to repeat or to mimic uh, that th those past decisions. Um, you know, if you talk about a human learning 
human child learning that hitting your head against the wall is not a good idea. You know, maybe you only need three examples, you're not millions, right? So, so big data is enough data to learn from, is my favorite definition. To get at the second part of, of that question. Well, it's, it's both a, a, a wonderful uh, source of, of information, right? So it can be used for good or it can be used to bad impact. And again, I, I use the word impact as opposed to, you know, use for evil. No one's going to say I'm going to use this for evil. I, I took the example of machine learning or AI is essentially repeating past decisions. But is that what you really want, right? If past decisions in housing, you know, decisions have been made in a sort of a biased manner, and I'm using the term bias in the colloquial sense, meaning there's a negative connotation to it. Then, then maybe repeating past decisions is not what you want. In, in, in that field, for example, you know, you're not allowed to collect race information, for example. But it turns out between your name and, and your zip code, your race can be predicted to 90% or greater accuracy. Right? It's just, just the way it is. And on the other hand as well, you know, to, to push back a little bit on one of the things you said, which is that we have ethics in the impact, not necessarily in, in the collection of data itself. What we decide to count is a sense of reflection of what we think matters to begin with. And we count the things that we think count or, or matter. Um, there was a very interesting article in The New Yorker a couple of months ago that talked about uh, a U. And a United Nations report that tried to get a sense of the distribution of domestic violence worldwide. And the United Nations support surprisingly discovered that there was very little domestic uh, abuse in India. Now, um, anybody who has spent time in India knows that that is not the case. So why did the United Nations report, which collected the data, determine that there was so little domestic abuse in India? Well, it's because it categorized or predetermined which categories counted as domestic abuse. So for example, it counted kicking or biting or punching or uh, inflictions of, of uh, bodily violence by you know, uh, apparatuses. It didn't account things like isolation or solitude or other forms of domestic abuse that, you know, culturally relevant in, for example, India and not in uh, other nations. And so the uh, assessment by machine learning came out with this understanding um, that's clearly false about the distribution of domestic abuse. And so I think that uh, you know, I bring up this point because it seems like what we decide to count in the first place matters. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of what uh, might be modified internally in terms of the companies themselves to produce more ethical AI. I've heard you talk about the difference between the future of what I've heard described as data first AI versus knowledge first AI. What's the difference between the two on first a technical level and then on a philosophical level. So when you build these systems, then you realize you have to incorporate human knowledge and human expertise in addition to whatever data you have in order to make it work at all. You know, it's just from a technical point of view, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so we created something called knowledge-first AI because it's not that easy to, to, to encode human knowledge, right? You don't want to have to write a lot of code to, to make that happen. That's sort of the old technique. Right. So how do you build these systems that incorporate human knowledge, human intent, domain expertise, and, and mesh them continuously with, with data so that as you have more data, it can be more machine learning based. But when you have mostly knowledge, then you can all have a functional system as well. And, and so we began to succeed within Panasonic 
And then we launched a company, this company called Itomatic, to essentially help other industrial companies do the same thing. Uh, so, so sort of coming to the philosophical implications of this, as we work on something, and this is the way a lot of things happen, right? You work on, you actually work on something, and then you begin to realize, wait a minute, th there's these things that are that are emergent and, and important. So, as we think about these systems, and we start to deploy them, and as I, I mentioned, you know, it has human impact implications and so on. And by the way. The team is very excited. You know, we're we're so helping to solve environmental issues. We're helping to improve, you know, fishing, uh, fixed net fishing off the coast of Japan, so that it doesn't damage the environment. You have to these, you drag these nets, you know, across the ocean. You know, imagine if somebody were to drag it right over your home, right, and pulling everything in in its path. And then we think about the, the system that we're deploying, and we realize there's a lot of human intent embedded in that. And we, we, we came to realize this was not a temporary solution, but it's actually the future because data, as much as wonderful as big data is, as wonderful as machine learning is, it was always reflect the world as it was or at best as it is. And when we build these systems, uh, the engineers, the expert, the fishermen, and, and you know, eventually the business managers, the ethicists and so on say, well, the system should behave this way. And that behavior is very often, certainly not, not, not necessarily what is just in the data. So for example, the example that I gave where you, 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 you train the, the, the system to make housing or loan decisions based on past data, and then you realize you're embedding all of the past human biases, that is not consistent with the intent. So we began to realize that systems that we build that are all data-based will always reflect the past. And as human beings, we always want the future to be different, right? We're always mm -hmm. changing something. We're always improving something in some way. So that human intent is always going to have to come from humans, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you want to sort of give up and say, okay, let machines run everything, Generally, which is not the case <laughs> for, for most of the population. So, so we, you know, this is actually the future. It's not just a temporary fix. Because as long as we need to incorporate human intent into our systems, we, we need to have a place for the input, that input, that processing that is very human. And so we, we, we you know, we went to generalize it. It's not just knowledge first, but it's human first, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard you use that term a couple of times, human first. How do you create a company that is human first? Is it in your hiring? Is it in decisions about the people that you bring into the company? Is it the structure of the company itself? Um, what is it that makes something human first? And how do you build that into the structure of not only what your output is, um, but also what your company is about? Well, by now I've built, I've started, you know, as a startup four or five different companies. I've worked as a global executive. I've worked as a an academic professor. There's something that I learned that is very important to building organizations. And a lot of people who are less experienced or they, that they don't think about it, the importance of vision, right? Vision done right. So, so we have a vision framework that has three components. One is purpose. The second is a set of missions. And the third is core values. So, so we're very clear about that. Our company purpose is elevating humanity through AI. That is a North Star. We will never, it's not an end goal, end goal, end goal right? It doesn't end uh, just because we have accomplished some mission. So there's a set of missions building the tool that we're building and so on, and the core values that are established around that. And so we align 
uh, all the team members around it. It's not necessarily filtered at, uh, incoming, but people look at these things and they say, well, yeah, that's something that is sufficiently inspiring and, and, and sufficiently motivational. That is something I want to work on. And the core values are like the, like the compass, right? Uh, you're going al along the journey. Do you turn right? Do you turn left? Making a decision between good versus bad is pretty easy, but making a decision between good and better, that's harder, mm -hmm. right? And, and so the core values are what helps to guide and make that decision at, at the relevant you know, forks in the road. So I think that framework alone and our consistent alignment and application of it in the in the building of an organization, I think is is a key to making sure that we stay true to the intent of of this organization. Do you think that the companies that you know uh, are creating some of the unintended consequences or negative consequences of technological production don't have these core mission statements and ideas and purpose uh, oriented articulations already built out? Why don't you think more companies do this if if you think that they don't? Or do you think that maybe more companies do have this and then just something goes awry? Well, you know, what I've described is necessary but not sufficient, right? I mean, you can have everything that I describe and not implement it, right? Or, or not believe in it. So, so that's necessary but not sufficient. Um, there's also business models where... And, and and by the way, I used to be part of this, right? So so if there's any crit critique or criticism, it's from within. There are business models where your interests are not aligned with that of your users, right? So for example, you have a business model where you provide utility to some class of consumers, right? But the people who pay you are, are not those people, it's someone else. So I think some of those models are sort of inherently misaligned. And so whether you like it or not, eventually there will be this emergent misalignment, right? There's this divergence in interest. Well, I have to make a lot of money. And so I have to satisfy my customers. But on the other hand, my users are these people. How do I satisfy those things? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they are hopefully aligned. But when they are not aligned, this, this is also about the core values that I mentioned earlier. Core values are not for making decisions between good versus bad. That's easy. But when you have two sets of constituents and there's that rare instance where the interests are divergent, who do you favor? So the more that when you build an organization where there's fewer of opportunities for those alignments, you know, the, the easier it is for you to make decisions that are quote unquote, at least consistent, if not correct, right? consistent mm -hmm. with your original intent. I, I teach a course on uh, data ethics and human values at Berkeley. We were chatting about it uh, before we started recording. And I, I teach that class in the School of Information. And so I'm talking to a number of folks who are either moving into the data science industry, um, hoping to become data scientists, or already in the industry, hope, hoping to uh, learn more about the approach. And they take my course on human values and data ethics at Berkeley with the aim of doing what you just talked about or being able to uh, make those kinds of decisions or think about how we decide uh, between what I call ethical choices, which are never or are rarely, uh, I should say, decisions about good or bad, but really decisions about where in the context of competing values or competing stakeholders, we make decisions uh, about uh, those values or those stakeholders in a hierarchy. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what you think that data scientists should know or understand about the field and where it's going in terms of data modeling and what you think that they should know about the uh, 
direction that these ethical decisions are going to take. How can data scientists learn and employ a human-first approach to data collection? Why should they? And what does the future of data science and the kinds of ethical decisions that data scientists are going to need to make look like from your perspective? I, I think the first and probably the most important thing, and, and believe it or not, a very controversial thing, is to accept responsibility or your share of the responsibility. That, I, I don't know whether you know that is controversial. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is, right? Because there are those of us that say, look, I'm just here to do the best I can with the data that I'm given. And I'm here to sort of objectively build a system <clears throat> based on these mathematical metrics. And the rest of it is someone else's, you know, get an ethicist in here, get a business manager in here. You know, you know, I remember when I was a child, uh, you know, a refugee child, I was uh, 10th grade, I think, first just got to the U.S. and spoke, speaking broken English. And and uh, somehow my school decided to put me up as a, a uh, to to join a debate, high school debate. It was a science, of course, it was right <laughs> uh, debate. But the question posed, and it was at the Ramada, you know, just off of 101 in Sunnyvale. And the question posed to us kids, you know, we're sitting at the round table, was should engineers and scientists, you know, take into account the impact of their technology? And I'm paraphrasing, using more modern language here. I, I got third place, sadly. <laughs> and I remember very clearly that the, there were two kids that, that took first and second. The, the first one took the position that, no, absolutely not, right? And the engineers and scientists are here to advance the cause, you know, using the scientific method and so on. The applications and so on are up to, up, up to society. The second place kid said, absolutely, yes, right? You know, if, if you don't think about sort of Einstein and the atomic bomb and so on, that, that you're sadly mistaken, you must absolutely take that into account. You must, you know, pause your activities, stop it all, you know, if you if you see potential for, for evil. My position was, I remember very clearly, you know, writing in the preparation, I said, there is a middle path. And 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 I got third place for that. And and I think that's that's also where, where I learned that in America, rhetoric is about, you know, motivating the extremes. You know? <laughs> But anyway, you know, in in the many years since, I've learned that in in fact the the middle path or the rational, the prudent path is in fact the right answer most of the time, right? At Google, we used to say, "What's the right answer?" The right answer is always it depends. Right? <laughs> it depends on what. Well, take, taking sort of a, a lot of factors into account, or certainly as many as you reasonably can. I, I talked, you know, very <clears throat> very early on just now about impact and and intent. A lot of times we focus only on the intent part and forget about the impact in the technology that we build. So coming back, I think data scientists, you know, whether they are experienced or just interested in getting in the field, I, I think because of the impact of the system that we are building, this, this is unprecedented, right? When I started in software, you know, the most that I could do is damage one computer, right? Today, you know, <clears throat> you, you push down one line of code at, at Google and you affect, you know, billions of people. Because of the impact and the power, the leverage that you have, then you have to think about the, the uh, you know, uh, the, the ethical implications of what you do, right? So I think accepting your share of the responsibility is the first step. And, and I fully realize that is a, still a very controversial statement in, the, yeah. in, the, in, the, in science and engineering. Yeah, it is controversial 
for for one reason, I think importantly, which is that usually when we accept responsibility, um, we also accept consequences. Look, if I could accept responsibility and not also have the consequences tethered to that responsibility, um, I think I might accept a lot more. That's just a, a human tendency to wonder or to worry about the consequences. And certainly, I think that with some of the damage that data science has done and that AI has done, there are pretty severe consequences. And if responsibility is tethered to them, it might be a incentive to not accept responsibility. Is this, do you think, uh, a reason why people don't accept responsibility? I mean, certainly the, the financial cost or potentially penalties that come with it um, gives a, a lot of, I would think, incentive for a company to uh, decide to not accept responsibility. And can we have the acceptance of responsibility without consequences? I think absolutely. Uh, but I think probably it's a temporary point in time. I, I don't know how temporary it is, but there's also a sense of besiegement by my f- colleagues and former colleagues, right? You know, we're, we're all old enough to remember if we sort of take a moment to think that tech was not always viewed as evil, right? Uh, when I was at Google, we were the darling, not just of Silicon Valley of the world, right? When we made Gmail free, people loved Google, right? There's a change in narrative over the past five, six years, and a, and a lot of people in, in tech <clears throat> feel very um, misunderstood. And of course, the headlines every day that are clickbaits don't help. So I'm, I'm not saying that this justifies the, 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 the ignorance or, or the lack of acceptance of responsibility, but I think it, it, it certainly generates in, in very, very human impulses, right? Say, hey, you're criticizing me for things that I've, that I've never done. So I'm going to sort of, uh, you know, step away from this conversation, right? So I think that is actually somewhat unfortunate. I think if we can at least, you know, have an honest conversation, uh, you know, from, let's say, on all participants in the conversation. If if you read headlines, they always talk about intent, right? They always talk about Google or Facebook, you know, clearly they're trying to be evil. I think I think the, the untold story here is evil can be perpetrated by people with extremely good intent, right? You know, we all know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I think I think we have that conversation honestly. Then then maybe we can begin to uh, uh, disentangle this, and the right people will say, yeah, yeah, I share some responsibility in that, even though I never intended, uh, you know, it to be to be that way. You know, I share your point of view on this. I grew up in Silicon Valley, as we were talking about uh, offline, and having run this show now for about three years and having talked to a lot of leaders in uh, Silicon Valley and in the tech industry at large, I've come across very few what I would call bad actors. I've come across almost no, maybe one or two villains. Instead, what I've come across are a lot of people who are either um, thoughtful about tech, but but not necessarily thoughtful about human values. Or what I've come across more frequently are people who are um, trying to be good, trying to do well, um, trying to do good jobs, but that are working within, I would say, incentive structures that pit oftentimes doing well against doing good that are in uh, industries whereby if you want to do financially well, you have to make all sorts of ethical compromises. And so I wonder about the incentive structures around um, tech and whether or not at this point in time when uh, financial outcomes are oftentimes so orthogonal to 
ethical uh, outcomes, we can really ever have an ethical set of technological innovations or an, a kind of ethical industry at large. But I don't know, it sounds like from your perspective, it's possible to do well and do good at the same time. What do you uh, think? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think this is kind of an availability bias. <laughs> you know, what we think about is the world is, is what's often you know, just the just the, the 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 memes that are being shared on Twitter and Facebook and even sort of New York Times and the and the like. But that's not the whole world, right? So the, the same the very field that I work in, for example, industrial AI and sort of industrial companies, right? You know, I talked about the the interest of the customers and the and the users and so on, right? Uh, take take a company like Apple. You know, <clears throat> relatively speaking, Apple is not viewed as evil. You know, compared to other Silicon Valley companies. I think there's a reason for that, right? Because for Apple, the, the customers are the users, right? Uh, Tim Cook once famous, famously said, look, I, I, I want my users to use my services as little as possible, right? I want them to be productive and move on with their things, right? That is diametrically opposed to something we call, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term engagement, right? At one point, you know, Silicon Valley companies, you know, the, the social networks and, and, and the like were motivated to say, let's maximize engagement. In fact, there was a company that went so far as saying, I think they called themselves dopamine.ai or something. And, and the whole thing is aligned, sort of, you know, revolves around how to make sure that people stay with the app and just do random things so that they can be exposed to advertising and so on. So what I'm getting at is that what we think is the whole space, the whole atmosphere and, and so on, perhaps it's just one type of business model, right? And it is possible to say, well, uh, let's rethink that business model, right? You know, if you, if, you, if you broaden that to say journalism, right? Journalism at one point was very highly regarded. I think it's no accident that was during the time when media or, or that, you know, that traditional media was very powerful, had a lot of money. I remember working in high school uh, for, for the San Jose Mercury News on a project called Newspaper in Education, NIE. It was, it was the most money I've ma ever made in, 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 the, in one summer, $2,000, right? But, but that was the San Jose Mercury News. They could afford to do that. And, and that power sort of shifted to the Googles of the world. And for one, at one point, Google had a lot of money and it could afford to do a lot of good, right? So I think, anyway, coming back sort of a, to, 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 to share my optimism, I think if you have a business model that is somehow aligned with the interests of, of, of your consumers, of your customers, then I think it is going to be less fraught with these ethical challenges. What keeps you up at night in terms of the risks of AI? What should we be aware of or thinking about? What, what uh, stops you from sleeping well at night when you think about the uh, future or the present of AI? Well, for, for me, it's very practical, right? The, 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 the safety, the reliability and everything of the systems that I'm helping, you know, my team and I helping to deploy out there because of the fact that they are physical systems, right? And, and it turns out that this is something that we're learning from our colleagues. Th think of us as a bunch of digital valley geeks, right? Co a, a, you know, coming with tools and, and algorithms and so on and meeting these engineers, industrial engineers for the first time. And those people have been working, grappling with these issues forever, right? When you put a, a car out there, when you put a plane out there, you go through all these rigorous checks, right? <laughs> and, and, and nobody has talked about them. 
suddenly now we're talking about about these issues uh, with re respect to AI. So so these are things that I'm sort of quickly learning, not not necessarily creating, because there are systems and processes uh, in these industrial companies that we we tend to think of as slow lumbering giants, but they are slow and lumbering most of the time for very good reason. The the other set of things that that keep me up is of course you know the near future. Uh, well, at least in my view, the near future, as we begin to deploy these systems, uh, not just in my context, but in the larger context, I mentioned that we're we're starting to be able to train our AI models, not just with data, right, which is one level of abstraction, but through direct instructions. I want you to, right? Uh, so for example, chat GPT, which was released by, by OpenAI, it's actually not a, a big advance in the fundamental algorithms. It was what OpenAI calls an advance in alignment. So meaning GPT-3 was 3.5 to be precise, was already there as a model. The advance with chat GPT-3 is making sure that model outputs things in a way that is aligned with the intent of OpenAI creators. So for example, it now, when you start to ask it questions that are controversial, it will either hedge, right? <laughs> or say, you know, I'm not able to search the internet. You should probably do that yourself, things like that. So, so this issue of alignment, right? Uh, I, I think, and, and, and OpenAI is already starting to be criticized for it in a matter of days. Before, uh, you know, companies were, uh, I remember Microsoft was being criticized for putting out an AI chatbot that very quickly became racist because it was learning from the examples that was being bombarded at it. And people were sort of, uh, you know, tricking it into, into very, <laughs> very crazy beliefs, right? And now when OpenAI say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna prevent our chatbot from doing that. People are criticizing them for essentially, why don't you just speak the truth, right? As you know it. So, so I think these are issues that keep people like me up at night, you know, as we grapple with this. But I, I think my optimism is again, if we, have these honest conversations and not be driven too much by what's the chatter on Twitter, you know, today, but, you know, and, and, and many companies are, are, are working through these things, right? Um, you know, I, I like what Sam Altman says, you know, the, the CEO of OpenAI, he says, you know, one of the best ways to do this is to iterate. And in this case, iterate in public, right? And at least we zig and zack a little bit, and then, you know, <laughs> sensing where the ethics of, of the of the society at large and and by the way that as, as as you know you you as a student of it you know that it, it does shift over time right and by iteration we can sort of keep pace with how we're viewing technology and how we're applying it and and I, I certainly think that's sort of one of the key insights that people miss you know don't don't just build it in the back room somewhere and sort of spring it on the on the world one day but I think if you sort of iterate in public, and, and, and you get feedback, you get criticism, you get encouragement, then I think, you know, you sort of begin to traverse or, or, or travel through that path that is very consistent with what the majority of society thinks uh, is right at, the, at any given time. I like to end on an optimistic note, so maybe we'll end there. Uh, that seems like a perfect note to end on. Um, Christopher, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you.